0: Turning to our study in the book of Joel. Uh, and in fact, uh, as it's a rather short book, this is our concluding study uh, for the book of Joel. Next week, we'll begin a series through the book of Malachi. Uh, but since it's been a few weeks since we've been in Joel, uh, I wanted just to remind us briefly of where we've come from. We've seen the plagues of locusts, we've seen the judgment of the Lord come upon Israel, and we've seen Him call them to repent of their sins. We've heard of the great and awesome day of the Lord, and we've heard of the day of judgment that the Lord will bring. And three weeks ago, uh, when Pastor Kerr was with us, we heard of a people who have nothing, people who had nothing to offer the Lord, and yet God is generous. He is a generous God who gives his people himself. And we know that these things point to a spiritual reality. Spiritually, we have nothing to offer the Lord. Our own works cannot save ourselves, and yet God gives us himself. He gives us what we need most. But the Lord is also a just God. And this morning we'll see how, yes, he gives generously to his people, but he does not forget iniquity, how he's also a refuge to his people and how the Lord is the judge over the whole earth. So before we study, will not you join me in prayer one more time. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you give yourself to us. And it's only by you and your grace and your mercy that we can be reconciled to you. So Lord, this morning as we study and we consider your, your justice and your goodness and your generosity, would you be with us? Bless our study this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me, if you will, to Joel chapter 3. If you have one of our cart Bibles, you can find that on page 762. Here now, Joel chapter 3. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there, on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations, and have divided up my land, and have cast lots for my people, and have traded a boy for a prostitute, and have sold a girl for wine, and have drunk it. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temples. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Behold, I will stir them up from the place to which you have sold them, and I will return your payment on your own head. I will sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans, to a nation far away, for the Lord has spoken." Proclaim this among the nations, consecrate for war, stir up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears, let the weak say, I am a warrior, hasten and come, all you surrounding nations and gather yourselves there, bring down your warriors, O Lord, let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. But the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, for the violence done to the people of Judah, because they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. I will avenge their blood, blood I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he bless it as we study together. How do you put a value on a life? How do you determine the worth of a person? Who's qualified to make that assessment? Are moral considerations the only considerations? What about financial impact? How could you possibly decide on the value of a human life? Now, to many of us, the answer uh, seems obvious, especially to those of us who have lost loved ones. Is you can't. You can't measure the value of a life, despite what, for example, the Department of Transportation says, where they value it at about $9.6 million, or take the Environmental Protection Agency, which has a statistical value of a human life of about $7.4 million. This question, the value of life, is one that's been the focus in our nation since its founding. In 1783, at the close of the Revolution, the form of our new government was yet to be determined, and before the Constitution was written, we had the Articles of Confederation. Now, in writing these articles, they had to consider how taxes would be levied, and under the Articles, it was done by land area. Individuals weren't taxed directly. Instead, the states were taxed on their land area, and they would tax people based on what land they owned. Now, naturally, this upsets the southern states because they're much larger. But eventually, the Articles are done away with, and in 1787, we have the Constitution that's written. But again, the issue of taxes arise, and this consideration, do do we tax via land or by population? And with our House of Representatives, everyone wanted the population issue to come to the front because given population, that's how we would fill the House of Representatives. So the North would never let the larger Southern states fill the House because of how big they are. Now, this brings into question the issue of slavery, which is still very much alive and well in 1787. Well, if population is going to be the measure of uh, taxes and, and the House of Representatives, well, the South wants to count their slaves. Well, that can't happen. Right, The North can't let that happen because they would be so far outnumbered. So they come to a compromise. You might know this compromise, it's the three-fifths compromise where three out of every five slaves will be counted towards population. Now that compromise gets rationalized away, doesn't it? You're, we're counting three out of every five slaves while not allowing any slaves to vote, of course. But what that really means is that each slave is worth Three-fifths of a person. They're less than human. They're only three-fifths as valuable as their free counterparts. Now, we're all familiar with the evils of slavery. It's an evil institution, no question about it. And while acknowledging in some way that slaves are people, they refuse to treat them as people. They refuse to give them the dignity that they deserve as an image of God. So how do you count the value of life? How do we make that decision? Who's the judge of all of these things? So Lord willing this morning, we'll see the immense value that the Lord has for his people, for the lives of his people. We'll see that just as he gives his people himself, so he defends them. He brings justice to those who persecute his people. Now our outline this morning is going to follow the the procedure of a courtroom. We'll see the accusations the reading of of the charges, then we'll see the trial itself, and then we'll see the sentencing. So that's where we're headed this morning, the charges, the trial, and then the sentencing. And we get this courtroom scene uh, set from the beginning a few verses. After the Lord, in chapter 2, after he's promised himself, promised to give his people who are so empty-handed, promised to give them everything, he does not forget the oppression done to his people the Lord, as the ESV puts it, will restore their fortunes. For if they have the Lord, they already have it all. But the sense here is that this captivity that they've experienced, this spreading, this dispersion, that the Lord's going to reverse that. They've been scattered and conquered and the land divided, and the Lord is going to undo all of this. But the Lord does not forget what has been done to his people. The Lord will gather, and this is verse 2, he says, I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there. Now this is not a reference to King Jehoshaphat. The name itself means Yahweh has judged. So this is a place that the Lord is saying, I will come and I will sit and I will judge. And so he's gathering all the nations into a place of judgment where the trial can begin. And of course, every child begins with knowing what the defendant is accused of. So those nations that oppressed Israel, that have oppressed God's people, what are they accused of? What's the Lord charging them with? This is the end of verse 2 now. The Lord will judge on behalf of his people because they have been scattered among the nations and divided up the land. They have cast lots for my people and have traded a boy for a prostitute and have sold a girl for wine and have drunk it. Skip down to verse 5. For you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried my rich treasures into your temple. These are the beginning of the charges. People have been displaced. They've been separated from each other. They've been separated from where the Lord has commanded them to worship. These foreign nations have divided the land They've taken treasures out of Israel and put them into their own temples. People, land, and worship. These are the accusations. People, land, and taking things out of the temple. People, land, and separation from their God. These ungodly nations are... Accused of trying to subvert the very word of the Lord, because these are the promises that were given to Abraham. As, as Pastor Kerr read during our scripture reading earlier from Genesis 15, those promises continue on in chapter 17. Here now, Genesis 17. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. separating the people this way, dividing the land, taking the treasures out of the temple and using it for ungodly worship. This is trying to subvert the very covenant that the Lord has made with his people. But in that subversion, they go so far beyond just scattering the people. They turn them into slaves. They've treated, they, they have treated God's people as, as trinkets. A boy for a prostitute, a girl for wine. They've, they have traded children for temporary pleasures. They've cast lots for God's people. They're gambling with human lives. Verse 6. You have sold the people of Judah and Jerusalem to the Greeks in order to remove them far from their own border. Can you hear the indignant tone that the Lord takes How dare they treat people this way? How dare they make slaves of the people God has chosen through whom he's promised to bless all the nations? What irony. Now here for a moment, I want us to pause and consider slavery. And and we ought to look at the whole counsel of God on this issue, the whole wisdom of Scripture when it comes to the topic of slavery. It's spoken of quite often in Scripture, and here in Joel chapter 3, it is condemned so clearly. But perhaps in other places in Scripture, it doesn't seem to be that way. Take Exodus 21, for example. In fact, keep your place in Joel 3, and if you'll turn to Exodus 21 with me. And while you're turning there, I'm sure that many of your Bibles have headings like laws about slaves. Now, how uh, are there laws for slavery when Joel so clearly condemns it here. Let's read a little bit from Exodus 21. Verse 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. Skip down to verse 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Now do you hear the difference? Because there is uh, a different cultural context that's happening here. The idea behind Exodus 21 is that people who have come on hard times are selling themselves or selling their families into slavery with the expectation and the knowledge that at some point they'll be free. With the expectation and the knowledge the Lord has commanded that they be treated fairly and well and with dignity as slaves. And that's what's happening here in Exodus 21. That this dignity of of the people, the dignity of people made in the image of God is being preserved. That's not the case in Joel. If someone, verse 16, when people are not treated justly, if someone is stolen and sold into slavery, both the one who took him and the one who bought him shall be put to death. And this is the situation we have happening in Joel Now, there are some difficult things to work through in Exodus, no question. There are difficult things in many places in Scripture dealing with a topic of slavery. But what is clear is that the Lord values his people, that the Lord made us male and female in the image of God. Male and female, he created them. And put his own image, made us in the likeness of his own image. And this is is the God that we serve, the God who is so careful through all of Scripture to point out how much he cares for us. Why else would this courtroom scene in Joel, and you can go ahead and turn back to Joel, why else would this courtroom scene happen unless he deeply cared about his creatures? Why charge the nations with the evils of slavery if he does not care about us? So then there's the question for us that remains, how do we treat each other? Now, I know that none of us are guilty of slavery and of, of gambling with human lives. I know that. But do we treat each other as, as the images of God that we are? Do we turn our noses up at, at homeless people that we see? Do we think about our coworkers as, as not worth our time? Or do we raise our voices in anger simply because we think someone's less than us? Or do we place the same value, the same dignity on all people? Do we have a godly understanding that we were all made in his image? And the nations here in this text clearly do not, and that's the charge against them, that they have oppressed God's people because they have not treated them with the godly dignity, value, or justice that the Lord loves so much. So now that the charges have been read, those that don't belong to the Lord uh, and and have sought to turn back his work to enslave his people, they've been summoned. And now the trial must commence now that the charges have been read. So the Lord beckons all to come down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, to the valley of judgment, and all are summoned there. Verse 9, Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. These mighty nations, mighty in their own eyes, mighty because of the size of their armies or the tools or the weapons that they have, they've all been summoned. Even the small ones, those agrarian agricultural communities, they're all called to to turn their plows into swords and their pruning hooks into weapons. Everyone, everyone, Is summoned to be here. Come ready to defend themselves. Come ready to defend yourself against the Lord. But they are summoned now to the valley of judgment, and there the Lord will sit and proclaim a judgment over them. Now, verse 13 speaks to that reality of when that time will come, and the Lord knows the right time for judgment. He's read the charges the nations will gather at the right time. When the harvest is complete and the vats are full, the Lord will judge. In other words, when their evil is complete, when their evil rises up before the Lord and is found to be in its fullness, then the trial will commence. How serious is this trial? This is not a traffic ticket that you get and you go, well, I'm just going to go and I'll pay the fine and everything will be fine. No, verses 14 and 15 Multitudes will be there. None will escape the judgment of the Lord. In fact, the sun and the moon will darken, and the stars withdraw their shining. What's happening here is that all of creation is stopping to pay attention to the Lord. This trial is the focus of everything that is happening at this time, and nature itself will react when the Lord sits in judgment. Now, I don't know if some of you remember many of the famous court cases that have happened over the last decades. We've had many important ones. One that sticks out to me is the O.J. Simpson trial. I was in fifth grade, and in the middle of the day, we stopped class. We turned on the TV to watch the verdict be delivered. Uh, Now, I, I didn't really know what was going on. I knew that if someone was in court, someone had thought they had done something bad, and maybe I knew that it was a murder trial. I was too young to understand really what was happening. Uh, But I remember that my whole school stopped for a couple minutes to watch this trial. I remember the shocked cries from the courtroom when the the verdict of not guilty was read. I remember my teacher not really saying much after that, turning off the TV, talking about the importance of of history, the importance of uh, remembering what was happening. And then we had a spelling test. And how insignificant does that spelling test seem now in the grand uh, scheme of American history? Um, some things are far more significant. But there, on that, on that day of judgment, there in the valley of Jehoshaphat, all of creation will stop and watch the Lord judge. Because he is the only one who can judge. He's the only one righteous and holy that can do that. So be assured that that day is coming. And the question is... When you stand there in that day of judgment, will you be among God's people or will you be among the nations? And we know that while well, speaking of these countries, this is speaking of God's people and not God's people, right? This is pointing to the spiritual reality that we know. But no one will be left out of that judgment. All people will be summoned. And we know that this is speaking, as, as prophets often do, of, of the future, of that which is yet to come. But there's one thing that seems to be missing in this court case. We have the defendants, we have the charges, we have a judge, and in a little bit we'll see the judge act as an executioner as well. He's the one that will rend the punishment, rend the sentencing out as well. We're missing an advocate, aren't we? We're missing an attorney, one who stands by our side to speak on our behalf. We know the charges the breach that sin has made. But that's what Christ does for his people. He stands beside them. He advocates for them. He intercedes with the Father on our behalf. And what a wonderful thing that he does that. We need someone pleading our case. And that's how Joel rightly concludes, after the Lord utters his voice from Jerusalem and the heavens and the earth shake as the Lord judges. And his voice will be heard, and his judgment will be terrible. But Christ pleads on our behalf so that the words of Joel are absolutely true, that the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. And as the Lord roars, his voice shakes the earth, and his judgment is rendered. But after this comes the sentencing, doesn't it? Throughout the passage, we've seen some of the punishment already as we've read through it. The sentencing given to the nations, to those that don't belong to the Lord. Back up in verse 4. What are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the regions of Philistia? Are you paying me back for something? If you are paying me back, I will return your payment on your own head swiftly and speedily. Now, Tyre and Sidon, you may not know, were close port cities to Israel uh, they likely would have seized the opportunity after the plagues, after the locusts came and destroyed everything. Uh, it would have been very easy for them to take advantage of of that situation. But what did they think they were doing? The Lord speaking not only to their actions but to their mindset as well. Do they so uh, disregard the Lord? Do they perceive some aggression from him or some aggression from the people of Israel? Is that how they justified themselves and what they were doing? If they thought what they were doing was repaying the Lord for some perceived slight, we'll know that they will be repaid. The sentence will be carried out speedily, swiftly. Verse 7, I will return your own payment on your head. I will sell your sons and daughters into the hand of the people of Judah. This sounds a little two-faced, doesn't it? It sounds like on one hand the Lord is condemning slavery while on the other he's using slavery as a punishment. And here again is where we need to take wisdom from the whole counsel of Scripture. Exodus, as we just read moments ago, recounts how slaves should be treated, specifically Hebrew slaves. And those laws would still very much be in effect for the people of Israel. There are also many laws dealing with how to treat foreigners in your midst, and the people would have to consider all of the laws that the Lord had given them and how they treat people. It's a difficult topic, talking about slavery in this way. Scripture speaks to it many times. We don't have time to talk about every instance where the Lord speaks of slavery throughout Scripture this morning. We don't have time. It's a complex issue. Many books and good resources that that I'm happy to point you to that I'm sure Pastor Kerr has as well. But I'd encourage you to study this issue. Slavery is very much still alive and real today, treating people as as objects, as animals to be traded the encouragement that we can take from this is how the Lord defends his people and how he charges those who oppress his people treat them as, as less than. And what a wonderful thing it is that God made us in his image and defends his people. But the sentencing picks up again Now in verse 19, Egypt shall become a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness for the violence done to the people of Judah because they have shed innocent blood in their land. Now all that had happened to Israel uh, and Judah, all the locusts and and the immense desolation and destruction that had come upon them, that's what's being called to mind here. That sort of unyielding, uh, totally complete destruction, that's the sentence given against Egypt and Edom. Now, these two nations, while, yes, Egypt was still very much a powerful nation at this time and it remained so for many centuries, they stand as, as symbols of, of the enemies of God. They're, re- they're reminiscent of the bondage that Joseph's family experienced for 400 years. And Edom, the people descended from Esau, Jacob's brother. They were a thorn in Israel's flesh for a long time. So these two nations who have stood against the people of God, their judgment is coming. Their desolation and their destruction will be done at the hand of the Lord. But we can trust the Lord. We can take him at his word. For the believer, that's really good news. For the unbeliever, that's really bad news verse 17 he gives us some assurance so you know that i am the lord your god who dwells in zion my holy mountain and jerusalem shall be my shall be holy and strangers never pass through it again the mountains shall drip wine and hills flow with milk and and it continues but the lord will provide he will demonstrate his generosity again and again and provide for his people just as he has said he would So we can trust the Lord that he'll protect us. We can trust the Lord that justice will be done. We can trust him. We can trust him because we know the judge. We know our advocate. We can trust him because he is the God that gives generously to a people who have nothing in return, and that is himself. He gives us himself to stand beside us on that day of judgment. Now as we begin to close, where does that generosity end? And here's the good news is that it doesn't. Verse 20, but Judah shall be inhabited forever in Jerusalem to all generations. Yes, the Lord will punish the guilty, and we can't forget that. And just as the book of Revelation tells us, there are saints under the altar asking when the Lord will avenge his people and judge those who dwell on the earth. That day is coming. And Joel speaks to that day as well but just as we've seen through this book uh, of Joel, the study that we've had, how desolation was brought on them through plagues and, and how all of this judgment came about, right? This promise also points us back to God's generosity and his goodness for all time. Judah will be inhabited forever, even after this desolation destruction that's been rendered. Jerusalem inhabited to all generations this is the gift this is the refuge of the Lord and we can trust him because he's the judge he's given us Christ as our advocate who speaks and pleads on our behalf and so it's it's that idea of trust that we're called to remember in this book of Joel trust him When the locusts come, trust him on the day of the Lord. Trust him in the day of judgment. Trust him because he is sovereign. He is the only one who can judge rightly the value of a life. He's the one who gave up his son, his only son, that even while we were sinners, Christ died that we might have life. We might have life with him eternal. And that's the love that God has for us. That's the love that God has for his people. So friends, trust the Lord because he's a judge and he's a righteous judge and he's given us one who stands beside us to plead our case. And because he pleads our case and because Christ died for us, we can trust him and we will have life. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and God, our advocate and friend. Thank you. Thank you that you are a judge who does not forget the oppression done to your people. But thank you for the gift that we have. Help us to trust you more. Help us to remember Christ. Help us to trust you. We'll pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.